0: Well, everyone out there in podcast land, I'd like to welcome you to episode one of The Godfather of Hockey. Steve and I have spent the better part of the past five years working on our documentary film about Coach Neal and his Fort DuPont Cannons hockey program. We maxed out our credit cards, emptied all our bank accounts, and put our blood, sweat, and tears into every shot, every edit, every moment. And there was moments of doubt that we would not make it to this point, moments of strife and indecision, but I'm very proud to say that it all appears to be worth it. Steve and I are honored to announce that the Canons do have a world premiere date. Where and when will be announced in the coming months, but you'll have to wait and listen through this podcast or listen very carefully. You might actually hear me yelling from the rooftop of my Toronto studio. I would like to thank all of our family and friends who have put us up on their couches, who have fed us, who have loaned us their cars, and have worked for free in order for us to make this crazy little film of ours make it to the big screen. Over the next 12 weeks, this podcast will shine a light on some of the incredible people who helped our film come to life, while also discussing some of the pressing issues that it addresses throughout the film. I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of the Godfather of Hockey.
1: This podcast may contain some strong language not suitable for all ages. What a lot of people should recognize is in this last year and a half, two years, that knock on the door, That knock is now not only knocking at the door of somebody that looks like me or a person of color or a woman or LGBTQ person or somebody of a different religion, but now it's knocking on everybody's door. And a lot of people aren't accustomed to that knock. This week on The Godfather of
0: Hockey, we have the 41st overall pick in the 1993 NHL entry draft. Scarborough, Ontario, born and bred, and the very man who was the catalyst for us making the cannons. As you will hear over the next 60 minutes, he is not afraid to say it like it is and backs up his words with his actions never forgetting where he came from, nor the unique opportunity he has been given to have played in the NHL. We are honored to have none other than Kevin Weeks as our guest on The Godfather of Hockey. He's the godfather of hockey in D.C. The godfather. If I don't do me, that's me. me. Calm through the storm, enemy. The enemy. Check the score, I came back from a deficit. A deficit. my
2: We have... One of my dear old friends on the show today, a veteran and OG of the hockey community, not just hockey community, but the Black hockey community. We have Kevin Weeks on the podcast today. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Really appreciate thank it.
1: you. AJ, you guys appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
2: Obviously, it's no surprise and no secret that this is a majority white sport or played by white people um, being a Black goaltender um growing up uh you grew up in scarborough which is where i'm from my man uh yes reps to the east side um Always. yes <laughs> tell us how you got involved in the game and how maybe you overcame some of those hey like i'm not supposed to play this type of game or you know did you have did those questions ever come up when you started tell us how you got involved
1: yeah so even before we moved to scarborough we lived uh kind of downtown toronto central ish around the iconic saint mike's arena uh St. Clair and Bathurst for those of you that are familiar with with Toronto or GTA kind of geography and basically my parents both emigrated from Barbados and both right from the outset you know a lot of people don't know Um, you know when a lot of people talk about female empowerment and things of that nature my mom left home at 16 years old like she left Barbados at 16 years old moved to Canada with my auntie Zeta who left Jamaica who went to London and my mom's late brother my late uncle uh Eustace who left Barbados and went to London Those two met there, they moved to Windsor, I think in 65 or 1966. And then they sponsored my mom to come and my mom went there as a 16 year old. So that's where things kind of kicked off in North America for our family, obviously the UK, Caribbean, UK, then North America. And my mom ended up sending for my dad who, you know, we talk a lot about social justice. My dad worked at Applewood's plantation in Barbados. He worked on a plantation and he they had a West Indies record label so they had a record factory on the plantation but he my mom persuaded him my mom set everything up in Canada for my dad and and for her got an apartment did all of his immigration had everything all set up all he had to do was just basically fly there after they got married in Barbados and came back and my dad just had to get a job so that's what I grew up seeing I grew up seeing that leadership from my mom and, and from my dad uh, my mom, more the financial kind of architect of the family, a little bit more practical that way. My dad, a little more of the dreamer, but both of them, you know, worked their respective jobs for north of 40 years. And my, um, my dad was at Laura Secord at the chocolate factory, uh, which was bought by Nestle at Birchmount and Ellesmere <laughs> and worked in the factory. And then my mom also worked at Blue Cross at Don Mills in Eglinton. And as I just told you, we lived at St. Clair and Christie originally before moving we to Scarborough, that's a long commute every single day especially when winters were winters at the time by public transit this before my dad even had his license so they would take the ttc every day to work no excuses nothing but top tier level work ethic which was exemplary to me as a young kid and i mentioned my auntie zane and uncle eustace reason being they lived in the same apartment building as my parents they lived in an apartment 401 we lived in 301 and my older cousin ian started playing you know street hockey in the neighborhood. He was born in 68. I'm born in 1975. So you can understand that age gap. but he was a big brother to me. he was my everything at that time. and seeing him and the kids in the neighborhood behind our building in around our building in that kind of grid was a very diverse grid, primarily Italian but still very diverse. So a lot of us were first gen North Americans, first gen Canadians where you know we had all these Italian players, Greek, Portuguese, fellow Caribbean, white, but British, um, Irish, Scottish, you name it. And we just had this kind of eclectic mix. And that was our entry into Canada, so to speak, even though some of us were born there, myself included. And everybody started playing. We had one goalie named Lambros who was Greek and his parents had emigrated from Greece to Canada. And for whatever reason, they moved back. And I was literally five, six years old, hanging around these guys as a tennis ball chaser when the boy, the street hockey ball chaser when the ball would go into the bushes and they're like, hey, man, if you want to hang around, you can hang around. But if you want to play and I'm like, perfect. So they basically had me and I would go in a little bit with them. And then we went to Hillcrest Park just down the street from us. And they used to make the winter rink uh, just beside the tennis courts there. And I literally was out there in cougar cougar boots or rubber made winter boots, the fake cowboy rubber ones that I had. And I was out there on the ice. I had no skates yet. And I was out there with them, younger than all of them, and just wanted to be around and just being out there in and around, you know, my older cousin and, and his friends and watching them play and sometimes getting in and play with them. And then they went up to St. Mike's Arena, you know, the iconic historic St. Mike's Arena and they registered to play for Toronto Olympics House League. And I remember when my cousin registered and some of his friends, I came home. And in that moment, our family's life could have changed forever. If my parents were closed-minded, it could have changed. And I came home like, hey, Ian, Ian's playing hockey at St. At Mike's. He's he's playing whatever. I, I want this is a six year old, I'm a six-year-old kid. And my parents said, okay, no problem. You know, fortunately they were open-minded enough and, and as dedicated and committed to to me and and to that dream and didn't squash it right there. And from that point onward, I just started playing and I played two years, two years house league there. I started going to power skating our then coach, Mr. Cesario at house league, him and his son, Anthony, I played, he was on our team. They started going to power skating because we didn't know. So it's Italian family, uh, Beijing, Caribbean family from Barbados. And we were just learning as we went and I started going to power skating and literally like they never had to tell me that I had to try harder, work harder, focus like, ever. I was just dialed in right from then. And my teacher at McMurray public school was Miss Mahar. I had her in grade one and Hoff, you would have seen this, but the, the kind of book that I drew, you know, you write your first book in first grade, second grade, whatever, and mine was just about me playing hockey. There was an NHL logo, there's an NHL scoreboard. And literally from when I was six years old, I, I wanted to and committed to and believed and kind of affirmed to myself that I was gonna play in the NHL. And that's kind of how things started for me. It was very crystal clear. Everybody has their own path in life in terms of career aspirations. But fortunately for me, mine was set at that age at that time 6 years old i knew that that's what my goal was
0: when did you see yourself as being someone maybe different or, or when did you start uh, seeing the hockey game as being something that doesn't look like you were accustomed to i guess the reason why i asked that is that so far thus you know you said it was it was largely a bunch of first and second generation canadians mm-hmm. from other countries playing together so mm-hmm. i imagine there wasn't any hesitation to say hey you know kev why don't you like it wasn't saying like hey let's get the black kid in that it was like hey kev you want to play jump in net when did you start realizing that maybe the game was a little bit different um you know perceived upon yourself or um, vice versa
1: yeah great question not as much playing at st mike's and playing house league because my older cousin was playing you know although he was several age groups up and a lot of his friends were playing and everybody had a different last name, different part of the color wheel, you know, different religion, you name it. So we were this real eclectic, kind of diverse mix. So I didn't really see it then. But when I went to my first tryout, AAA A tryout for Toronto Red Wings, I was eight. So I was a year younger. Those guys were 74. So I was 70, I'm a 75. And our then coach, who I owe so much to late coach, Mr. Armstrong, he told my dad at, at the trials, he's like, I-, I want your son and I want him on the team. My dad's like, yeah, he's a year younger than these guys. He goes, yeah, it's not a problem, I want him on the team. He's one of the best skaters out here, even though he's a goalie, we want, I want him. I like the fire in his eye, I, I want him. So I was eight at that point. And similarly, our team still had players from different backgrounds on that team. Uh, Luigi Calci, Italian. Paula DeStazzi, Italian. Mike Pecco, who you'd also come to know, Italian. Mike Demarowski, Russian Jewish. I can kind of go up and down our roster. Um, you know, we had Filipino kids, Latino kids, you name it and it still didn't really dawn on me then either but when it started to dawn on me more is not playing triple a in in toronto per se because i saw other black players and other players of color and and people of different you know greek portuguese you name it in our organization the toronto red wings at the time which were the most diverse AAA organization i'd probably say in the world let alone in in toronto so i saw older guys richard rary jeff bird paul holder Paul Reed, Sean Reed, that looked like me in the organization, but that were older. These guys were studs and some of them were goalies, especially Jeff Bird. So I was really looking up to them and aspiring to be like them, you know, watching them. And that gave me confidence too, you know, that gave me a lot of confidence in seeing that they were there. But when we went to tournaments and some of the tournaments we went to, it was weird because you wouldn't really see that many black players on other teams. And quite often, I was the only black goalie unless jeff birds toronto red wings bantam or midget team was there um you know save for him and maybe the odd other person but aside from that i was literally the only one and i didn't really think of it at the time i just knew that i wanted to kick and give my team a chance to win and, and try to be sick and win these tournaments and be a part of winning teams with my buddies and again all the while with i want to play in the ohl i want to play in the nhl right as, as far as my goals were but it never really dawned on me until those tournaments. And sometimes in those tournaments, you get some ignorant parents that would say ignorant things. And this is why I'm, I'm pretty intolerant for that because sometimes it'd be opposing players the odd time, but more so you hear it from parents hmm. and they, you know, say a racial epithet or whatever. And I got to give my parents, especially my dad, a lot of credit because he never, which is very easy to do when, when somebody's demeaning you or your child for no reason, needlessly, because you're an idiot and hmm he never lost his cool i don't know how he did it but he never did and i don't know if it's caribbean chill but if you know anything about us caribbean people we're chill but you know you you you, we're not stupid you know what i mean and and we don't really suffer fools or or foolishness lightly but for whatever reason my dad was cool with it as far as maintaining his composure and that's when i really started seeing it to answer you that's when i saw it kind of in 3d when i realized that okay this is kind of different And, and we, my family, we're very different in terms of our foray into this game. That's when it started to show its face a little bit. Did you feel
2: like when you were coming up the ranks that there were opportunities taken away from you, or did did you find it was harder uh, to move up being a person of color playing the game?
1: I didn't really notice the, the disparity, if you will, as much until I got to the OHL, but not in Owen Sound because I got drafted Owen Sound, and we had <laughs> my, my goalie partner Jamie we're boys to this day, and uh, blessed both his parents who passed on. But his mom is Japanese and his dad is Hungarian, so he's like this—he's he's an Asian mixed Asian kid, and he's a top prospect. And you have me as this Caribbean kid, this black Caribbean kid. So mm-hmm. it, it was pretty interesting that that both of us had the you know our diverse backgrounds, but. He was treated well there, I was treated well there. We played together for two years and I had to, basically I had to force a trade to get out of there so I could play more and he could play more. I was then drafted by the Florida Panthers in the second round. He was drafted by the LA Kings in the first round, highly too for him. And uh, we both needed to play, there was only one net. So I forced a trade and I went to Ottawa 67s. He ended up going up to LA, playing with the Kings and Gretzky, staying in his house for a while. And then he went and got traded back to Windsor. But once, once that was kind of over, then I started to see it more. Then I started seeing that more. And 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 then I started to see, you know, some of the difference in in um some of the slanted reporting, if you will, some of the slanted print or some of the slanted TV kind of journalism, if you will, around that. And then I started to see the disparity around contracts. Like I was drafted second round and there's some other second round guys that signing bonus were getting four, five, six hundred thousand. I remember them coming to me and being like, hey, here's two, here's two, two twenty five. Here's two fifty. Here's three hundred. And that's when I started to see that. Mm-hmm. And And our first round pick, I think, ended up getting nine seventy five and I signed two seventy five. And it was like pulling teeth to get that. I'm not a math major. I went to high school in Scarborough and i was lucky i was lucky to get to get through 10th grade math grade 10 math but i got to tell you like that's a seven hundred thousand dollar disparity and that to answer you that's where it started that's where i started to see that that's where i started to see the gap and then you know i'll always be indebted to the panthers organization even though there's different management we're down here at our place in miami as we speak but they 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 drafted me i'll always be indebted to them They allowed me the opportunity to develop and play in the minors. And the great Billy Smith was our goalie coach that helped me get to the NHL. So I'll always be indebted and and grateful to him and them. He went to bat a lot for me. So I'll always respect him for that too. And, uh, you know, Hockey Hall of Famer that he is and winning all those cups for the Islanders, he had a lot of cachet. But he went to bat for me a lot. And he really invested a lot in me. But when it came time to contract him aside, it was always like this huge disparity. So that was contract number one. And then contract number two, I saw the same thing with them, which is why I asked for a trade. And I went back to the IHL and played uh, for my man John John Torchetti with the Detroit Vipers, and and lit that league up too. And then uh, finally got traded to, uh finally got traded. My rights got traded to Vancouver. So I saw a lot of that as I continued to climb. That's when I started seeing more of it, and that's when it became more of an issue, not for me, um, and not for the people that were open minded and objective. That were supporters that were great but for some of the other people in management and some of the other people in in the press it started to become more of a problem for them than it was for me and more of a problem for me and and other players of color and you know some of the other european players but certainly um, for for black players and players of color that's when i started to see it and some of my other fellow black players and players of color started experiencing it as well
0: when it comes to the contract That's behind closed doors. And it's like, dude, you just told me like I was your number one. You love me, but you're doing this shit to me. Like, was that like a very difficult thing to sort of grasp? Because you're like, we're bros. Like I thought we were, I thought we were boys. Like, is this something you talked about amongst yourselves? Do you start having conversations like this being like, is this a trend or is this just
1: something to do with Kevin weeks? It, It was a trend. And, you know, you started, fortunately, at least at that time, there were some other Black players that were in the NHL and some of them that were almost in the NHL at the time, like Freddie Brathwaite, whose parents are from Barbados as well, goalie Freddie Brathwaite, walking um, Gage goalie as well, who started coming into to Edmonton. Both of them ended up playing in Edmonton. Uh, of course, the great Grant Fuhrer was there, who had an amazing Hall of Fame career. But even with Grant Fuhrer doing what Grant Fuhrer was doing with Edmonton and, and on the world stage with, with all the Team Canada teams and everything else, you know i'm still getting goosebumps talking about it now there was still a huge disparity mm-hmm. you know, for him it was fine and he was the unicorn because he's the only black goalie in the world that was playing at that level and then of course freddie came in with him walking gage as i mentioned pokey reddick and a few others but from that point on yeah it, you started to see even with freddie and walking gage you know those guys were getting the same contract as the other guys and fortunately the great Glenn Sather was the GM and the architect of the Oilers. And Glenn always had international players. Let's start with this. People don't realize Wayne Gretzky's Polish slash Russian Canadian. A lot of people don't talk about that. But then you start going around those Oiler teams, they always had diverse teams. So again, huge props and respect to, to Glenn Sather. He ended up having me with the New York Rangers down the line. I ended up playing with him with for him there. But he always had diverse teams. No question. Edmonton always but around the league, that wasn't necessarily the case. And remember, if you don't have the power or you're not a member of the media, you don't have the ability to course correct some things that some people write and some things that they say and some things that a GM or a coach will say, right? Because a lot of them are, are like this, are hand in glove. So how am I gonna be able to dispute that? I can't dispute what they're saying. And if I do, then I have an attitude. So it was a real tough in that respect when that when those things were happening that was a tough circumstance where you just feel really disempowered and helpless in a lot of ways. So um, I never forget what that felt like. It's a horrible feeling and it's in that respect, it's, it's so disrespectful to your core of who you are and what you are and who you come from and what your abilities are as a player and as an athlete, of course, but all of that then wrapped into that package and your compensation, the way you're treated, and things of that nature when that presents itself, which it did at different times. And it's I don't wish that upon anybody. And that's why I don't take this stuff very lightly. And Hoff, we've had some of these conversations where, you know, a lot of times it's easier to kind of laugh or like shh or exhale hmm. or try to take the whatever. I don't wish anybody in the world to have to endure some of those things that that some of us endured just to play the game that we love. And quite frankly, the game that we're great at if you're one of the 750 players, and in my case, one of 60 goalies in the world that play in the league. I remember you saying to me um, that sometimes you felt like you were running
2: with a parachute, you know, on your back, right? Well, yeah. And everybody knows that when a parachute fills up, you know, you, you can't go any further, right? Um, yeah,
1: I know that visual very well. And, and I also said that it's, it's, it felt at times like I was walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls with no safety net, none. Because everything, everything you did, everything I did was hyper-scrutinized, every game, every save, every goal which is part and parcel of being a goalie, but also was amplified because the fact that I happened to be a black person that was playing goal. And as I said, you don't have the same resources by way of relationships in the game per se, with people of influence that can go to bat for you, that have your back. Uh, you, you're not in the same social circles quite often. I'm in Scarborough and I'm in Toronto, and a lot of people are at lakes and cottages, so, or on golf courses. So. A lot of those common denominators where those things are concerned from a social standpoint, were very different for them and very different for for somebody like myself. and And as a result, there's not that kind of common thread where, hey, you're on your boat, I'm on my boat, you're at the lake, I'm at the lake. your kids are playing in the in the lake or pool, my kids are there. You know, you have this huge kind of gap, right? Um, and that kind of make because we're in the, we're still in the people business. And a lot of it comes down to people. So my thing, and the way that you know my parents raised us, is that you treat people regardless as to where they are. You treat them very well. You treat them with respect. You treat them with dignity. Um, you know, you're gracious to them. You're thankful. You're mannerly. You're all these things. All of that worked to a certain point, but then there's some things that you just can't control. And some of these other things, as I was saying, some of these other things are just beyond my control. They just happen to be a lot of other people's thoughts, or some other people's thoughts, or feelings, or their experience with somebody that happens to be Black or not, or their perception based on watching TV of what they think Black people are or not. And, and then for me, I was this anomaly because I was an anomaly in a lot of ways personally, and then I was an anomaly because I was playing the game.
0: Do you have, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, I started to do some research on the ice hockey in Harlem program. And I met a bunch of the characters and the kids in in the program there. And there was, Mm -hmm. there was one of the mothers or she was an older sister that she would bring her brother down to the rink every Monday and Wednesday, I think. And she was, uh, she was probably 20 something, 28, um, but very vocal in the Harlem neighborhood. And she was, she was awesome. And I, and I enjoyed talking to her and I sat down with her and I took her out to lunch and we, we had this conversation where she was like, you know what? You know what I'm tired of? She's like, I'm so goddamn tired of being the fucking black person in the room. And everyone's just like waiting for me to fucking do something because they can, they're just waiting because you are like, some, she's going to do something crazy, whether it's funny, screaming, get drunk, do whatever. And I guess I never really thought about it that way. Of course, I had to look in the mirror and I don't th- see myself as a white person. I don't yeah. actually even think about it. But sure. I wonder when you sit in the dressing room and you're like, I'm the only black person in here or I'm the only black player. Or, you know, even in your position now, you, you might be the only black commentator on ESPN for hockey. Like, are yeah. you fucking tired of that? Like, are you like, does that, is that a burden on your back at times? Or do you carry it very strong and you're proud of it?
1: Yeah, so so it kind of cuts both ways. First of all, I carry it strong because I know exactly who I am, where I'm from, what my culture is, who my parents are, my sister, my extended family. Be proud of that because it, we all have a different denomination of what that looks like. And then going forward, know exactly what you want to accomplish. Know where you are and know what you want to accomplish. So for me, all of those things were really clear. Uh, so that's the awesome part about it. The challenging part about it is the other side, which you were just referencing, is at times, as I said, be it a, ma- a general manager, be it the odd coach, be it the odd media person, let's see what he's going to do. Let's, let's mess around with him and, and see. I'm going to write this piece and see. Oh, you gave me that from the general manager, from the coach, who both turned out being crooked, which I won't, I won't uh, dignify, and were proven to be crooked. Those two people, but that's another story. But yeah, this is what we think. So go ahead and write that. This is what we think. So go ahead and say that. Next thing you know, that stains you, right? It stains your character, and then you have to go all the way back, and you have to then try to disprove and dispel it. And more importantly, just by being a, a quality person and a quality goalie, right? so yeah that part of it becomes tiresome because life is already challenging enough it's already hard enough for anybody <laughs> sure. You know? and i think what a lot of people should recognize is in this last year and a half two years that knock on the door that a lot of us have had to have and face as i said since i was eight years old and more as i climbed the ranks that knock is now not only knocking at the door, of somebody that looks like me or a person of color or a woman or LGBTQ person, or somebody of a different religion, but now it's knocking on everybody's door. And a lot of people aren't accustomed to that knock. Hmm. They don't like those knocks. They don't like those adversity calls. They're not accustomed to that. I've been accustomed to that. So, so I know, as I told you, tightrope walking over Niagara falls, that doesn't afford you all of this, um, indifference and being laissez-faire and and being whatever. Everything had to be tight, 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 tight. Every interview, tight, tight. The way I dress, tight. The way I practice, tight. All these different things. It doesn't mean that it's perfect, but it just meant that I was striving for that every day. And I had to be that all the time. And I expected that of myself because I wasn't only representing me. I was representing the players, my teammates, the coaches, the fan base, the organization, our team staff, but also people that look like me, people that don't look like me, young people that are aspiring to get in the game, people back in my hometown of, Tor- of Scarborough, back in Toronto, back in Barbados. And quite frankly, you know, up until now, a lot of my success is their success. See what I mean? So sure. so I was never I never had that kind of looseness, so to speak, that a lot of people have had, I don't know if you want to call it the good fortune of having, but through COVID and the pandemic, that's jammed a lot of people up and a lot of people aren't accustomed to getting jammed up. Unfortunately, <laughs> I am. So, kind of, so, so, so it kind of served me well in that respect, but you've seen that a lot of, you know, a yeah. lot of people have been like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. This is crazy. How come I can't, blah, blah. So a lot of people don't understand. No, whether for good reason or not, they just don't understand. No, where, you know, I came up with a very structured Caribbean household and I understand what that's like starting with my mom and dad um for my sister and I and I know what those guardrails are like so it's it's been a wild time in that respect as I said that's the other end of it that that I don't like because people needlessly make things difficult and they compound needless difficulty I'm a simplifier I like to be a solution and I feel like a lot of times as people as human beings we we needlessly playing is hard enough living is hard enough playing in the NHL is hard enough living in any society is is difficult and has its own challenges for any person regardless as to where they are so why would you then line up a squad for example and say hey kevin i'm going to load up your knapsack with 75 pounds in it okay russian player a i'm going to roll up your knapsack with 35 pounds in it indian player b or c yeah hey man we're going to go and load up your knapsack. it's already hard enough to play why are we compounding difficulty this is a
2: great segue to the Cannons and what Neil Henderson has done with, with with his program. But before I think we get into that, I wanted to mention that you yourself had started a program back in the day and had fostered a lot of the, the talent that we see in the National Hockey League today. But you've been doing this for a long time. So maybe just tell us what you were doing with your hockey program when you first started that and, and the type of
1: people that were part of it. So I'll say this. I'll kind of echo this. When in playing or now on television, multimedia now, you know, I've never done, I've never done this. I didn't play for myself. Especially being a goalie, I played for my team, my teammates. I wanted to kick. I wanted to make big saves. I wanted to do everything I could. Be a good teammate. Be in good shape. Be dependable. Speak well in the media. Stay out of trouble. Do all these different things that you know with the values that my parents impart on my sister and I. And then in so doing the perceived benefits and or the real benefits they would never flow to me only. Okay. So for every dollar or every opportunity or whatever, that's so my parents and sister could be good and myself, not just me, so they could be good. And then from that, then that's my parents then saying, Oh, well, cousin A in Barbados, cousin C in Barbados, cousin C here, this, whatever. So then that's then filtering to them to be good or friends. So it was never to again, right up till now, there, there's no. It's not about being self-serving. I have I've played or do media now for people, myself included, but way beyond myself, and that's the way I was since I was young. So to that, to that example you made, Hoff about skills hockey at the time, in uh, in Scarborough, I was an original student of the camp. Once I got into the league, probably in about '97, I then said, okay, you know what. My parents. I'm going to help my parents buy their dream house. They were in their house. I helped them buy their dream house, and then over time, I ended up paying my parents' mortgage off. And if you know anything about Toronto and you know anything about real estate, you know it's one of the hottest real estate markets in the world. You know how expensive it is. So, all that to say, you know, make sure that my parents are taken care of. Make sure that they can retire comfortably, having worked as hard as they have. um Make sure that my sister can go to the you know university of her choice. Make sure she can have kind of a, you know a good foothold and a landing to, to, to have a good life for her and, and her husband and my, my now niece, et cetera, et cetera. And it was the same thing on the hockey side. So I started funding and underwriting skills hockey out of my own pocket. I never got a dollar from, from anybody at the league. I never got a dollar from a club. I didn't even get a sponge puck from any team I was playing for. No anything. No mini stick, no T-shirt, no hat, Keychain. key ring, zero. So I started funding this and bootstrapping this myself and underwriting this myself. So that was my RBC credit cards. That was my RBC checkbook that I wanted to have. I wanted these young girls and boys and people of color and beyond to have an opportunity to think that they could have a life in this, in the sport if they so choose. And part of the challenge around that is a lack of access and obviously a lack of example. So I wanted to provide both. I want to be the example, because I live it, but also I wanted to help facilitate that access and offset those costs. And it isn't always cost prohibitive, although it often is for anybody, especially now, but it's also seeing the example. So people were able to see my dad in the arena. They're able to see my sister and my mom and my dad in the arena, and they're able to see me on the ice. And then they're able to turn the TV on and see me playing in the NHL, which just amplified their ability to have access and their ability to visually see themselves in the sport in ways in which they so chose. If it was to play recreationally, it was fine. If it was to play at a competitive or elite levels, it was fine. So for me, it was really about helping to provide that for those those kids and and a little bit of a roadmap for them and their family. And as I said, we we were able to touch a lot of lives at the time and and impact, you know, a, a lot of that kind of first introduction to the game. For a lot of those girls and boys and their parents to understand what that looked like and, and give them a safe space to be able to do it. What was more important is the fact that they were able to have that introduction in a safe way and in a way where somebody that looks like them. And that came from the same parts of the city and, and my, you know, in the region and Caribbean as well, that that had their backs and wasn't going to marginalize them and marginalize their access. So that's just for the ice time. It was the same thing for sticks for equipment for gear and you know i i always want to maintain the dignity of of every one of those players and their parents but not everybody had the ability to afford gear and sticks and skates and and again that's that's part of where i came as well so i'm just happy that we were able to do that for those young girls and boys and their parents and happy to see the fruits now from that as well Steve and I had these discussions about how do two white guys from
0: Toronto discuss these topics and 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 sure. whether whether we should be and whether we shouldn't be, um, and and is it appropriate? Is it appropriate for us? Um, so you know these this conversation is really really important um, and it's helping us understand how we can articulate things you know down mm-hmm. the road when people ask us why we did this or or what made us what drew us to the program, sure. um, but there was a discussion of whether we should include some you know um because there wasn't a tremendous amount of racial tension and racial issues that existed within the canons within their history um and with even even within the players and and, and especially nothing really with within the year that they played Mm -hmm. so we went back and, and and we included some footage some history of why it is it is difficult and what are some of the stresses and and um problems that have have faced black hockey players and we used one of the examples of joel ward when he scored against the bruins yeah. and then afterwards there is a large twitter or facebook kind of group that that yeah. really embarrassed i think humanity and themselves Absolutely. is it upon you to reach out to joel to talk to him whether you knew him or not I you did. know is it is it like what do you do like what do you do as a group as a as as a um, as a minority within the hockey world or just as a black, a black, black American, black Canadian. Um,
1: what do you do, man? Yes. I was in touch with him. And uh, in a lot of those instances, I've been in touch with players uh, and or their family members. Devonte Smith pelly had happened to in Chicago. I remember speaking to his dad Wayne numerous times. Um, there's, there's so many different people and quite frankly, guys, and, and Hoff, you would know this, which is why I, I'm very serious about this. Again, we have eight billion people on the planet Earth. Many times, I'm the only person that even ha- of of color to even have these conversations with them in the league, period. So the conversation has become very topical, very timely now. But Hoff, as you so aptly put at the start of the show, this has been going on since the early '90s for me. This isn't new. Right? <laughs> you know what I mean, this because I've been living the experience myself firsthand. The first person, but also a lot of it has been incumbent on me and my family to share this experience and some of my experiences. um, With some of these young girls and boys and people that are playing with their parents to help guide them on their journey and believe me, as I said, when those knocks come at the door, a lot of people aren't 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 equipped to be able to handle it
2: you know there's a lot of people playing the game that people don't really know about and someone like pk was an anomaly of sorts was like whoa like there's a black superstar player at that time at least several years ago um and it was very unusual and i think that that brought um me towards this story about the Fort dupont cannons and so after doing some research um you know i had reached out to you about hey like what do you you know about this team you know do you know this program and you mentioned yeah and you just without hesitation just sent me neil henderson's you know cell phone number and the rest is yeah. history but maybe you can tell us a little bit about when you first went there remember when i asked you i'm like what was it like when you went to southeast dc you're like yeah man like it's heavy you know yeah, like totally. and, um what was it like what maybe tell us what your first impression of coach neil was and what, what you know how that happened when you first went down there
1: Sure. So I could really relate to that because as mentioned, we had the skills program back in Toronto that, that I was underwriting and then it gave me a great basis and experience to be able to understand what coach Henderson was doing and all the amazing things he was doing in uh, in Fort DuPont, with that program in DC, uh, you know, living that, knowing that, knowing everything that that entails, knowing the cost, knowing the time commitment myself, and then seeing somebody like him who, was so committed and is so committed to a lot of those young kids and those young families in DC and quite frankly committed to our sport as well. To be able to grow the sport, make it more accessible, create a safe environment where these, you know, these young girls and families and boys can come and play. And and again, as I said, have an introduction and concierge them into the game, and also to be able to give them a sense of purpose and something positive where you can get a lot of life skills and and add structure, accountability, performance, dependability, teamwork, physical fitness, all the rest of it, travel, and, and do that in a way that's another avenue for a lot of these kids. Because a lot of people like us think the only avenue athletically is to play in the NBA or maybe to play in the NFL, maybe in certain instances to play MLB, major league baseball, or to run track and be in the Olympics or whatever the case may be. but. Hockey hasn't always been that avenue. And quite frankly, um, some of that based on some of the systemic challenges that we have in the game. And I know, again, I told you everything hung in the balance for me and my family when I was six and said I want to play. My parents could have very well said, like a lot of our different family members or different friends that they have, wow, no black people play hockey. Why are you have him playing that? Why is he playing that? I was very fortunate my parents didn't say that. And quite frankly, sometimes other people say that and they're right. And it's expensive and it's time consuming. So I really appreciate right off the bat, when I when I got to Fort DuPont, I appreciate the life commitment that that Coach Henderson has made to the sport, to the facility, to the kids, to the game. I mean, he's been doing it for so long and I was really blown away in, uh, in, in speaking to some of the kids there as well. And, and Kenny Martin, who worked for the NHL at the time, Kenny and I had gone to Fort DuPont a few times. I then went there a few times on my own as well and through the league. And what was also pretty pretty much a head scratcher is outside of the Washington Capitals, although we had the industry growth fund at the NHL that, that funnels money into a lot of these programs, that's the oldest and only minor hockey, inner city minor hockey program in the United States for the longest time. And it's still the oldest to date uh, now we have others in detroit and you know some other pilot projects in different different parts of the country here but um at that point it was the first it was a unicorn and as difficult as you guys would know it's difficult for them to get funding right and this is yeah. exactly what i was telling you when my credit card was on the line when my checks were on the line i can certainly appreciate and know what those calls are like you know for, for coach henderson and it's just I, as blown away as I was in my situation that I didn't get that support, I'm as blown away for him being here that he didn't get that support. And, and hopefully he continues to get more. I know that the, the caps under Mr. Leonsis um, and, and Devontae Smith-Pelly and, and some other people have started donating. And, and I hope that that's something that continues to get funding because again, <clears throat> whether you're at risk or not at risk, everybody is quasi at risk for something. And especially with a lot of the challenges that are outside of your doors or your parents' doors or your grandparents' doors or whoever you're living with, and uh, for these kids to be able to have this opportunity to play the game and learn, like I said, the life lessons from, uh, you know, Coach Henderson, who happens to be Caribbean American as well. it's They're so fortunate. And what he's done with them is uh, is, is is iconic. It's legendary, really.
0: Do you think the NHL and hockey itself is welcoming enough to those that are kind of been neglected for, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years? Are they bringing those outside that don't know hockey? That probably is the only chance for hockey to actually grow because it doesn't need more help here in Canada for, for for the most part, it needs, it needs to grow in areas where it's underrepresented. Um, Is it
1: doing enough? There's a lot of room to grow and I'm going to actually go a little bit deeper. You mentioned in Canada, for example, look, man, a lot of people got to be realistic about what's going on in Canada. And I don't know any Canadian team with the exception of the Winnipeg Jets right now. And the Leafs now are starting to do it under MLSC's umbrella. But I don't know a lot of the Canadian teams that have made a real conscious effort and commitment to growing the game in underrepresented communities. I could tell you that I grew up there. And it's disappointing. You know, for years, we never saw any Leafs anywhere. There's 130 rinks in the GTA, I didn't see them there. I only saw those guys when I started skating with them as a prospect, once I was good enough to skate with them in the summer skates. But for years, there was a huge gap where they didn't do anything in the community and certainly not in in, underrepresented ones per se. Same thing in Montreal, same thing in Vancouver, same thing in Calgary, for sure. Same thing in Edmonton. One thing I will say, as I said, Edmonton's always been the most diverse team. They still are to this day. So I give them huge props in that respect, but there's a huge opportunity. And again, I've been talking about this ad nauseum since 96, 97, we're here in 2021. There's a huge opportunity to continue growing the sport and not only for the people that play it at an elite level, but it's for the force multiplier. And what i mean by that is you know when you look at our clubs and our league and the sport in general for every kid that's playing that means at least a sibling or two or a parent or two or three or four or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle they're dragged into the game too sports is about family and hockey specifically is really about family you know it's not you know dropping you off or you're not playing through your high school circuit per se Um, as if you're playing basketball and then maybe you're playing AAU like hockey takes a lot of commitment and if you can have a if you once you hook a a young girl or boy or even an adult that's playing adult rec league then you get the force multiplier of their family members that are now starting to watch the LA Kings they're now starting to watch the Anaheim Ducks or the Vegas Golden Knights and you know your daughter's playing there's not enough ice in Vegas now from speaking to their owner bill foley he's told me this numerous times which is why he's building more arenas they have the rigs programmed 24 hours a day in vegas so they can't even meet the demand they can't even keep up with the demand and they're doing everything they can and that's for girls and boys youth hockey from rec to elite and then also for adult rec so that those are where the opportunities lie with sport and with our sport is having as many people as possible watch play quasi play recreational play (laughs) aspire to play play at elite levels and or simply be fans and and wear our gear and wear merch and buy merch and 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 more importantly watch and tune in across all platforms that's where that growth comes in because there's a lot of opportunity to answer you with our sport i like some of the efforts um you know i've spoken to commissioner bettman and deputy commissioner bill daly who have a great relationship with i know the way they see it as new Yorkers. But we need to we need to foster more of that around our sport and with people in uh, senior executive leadership and ownership. They can learn a lot from some of some of those other people for sure.
2: Everything that uh, you've done for this film, and i'm I'm really pumped for you to see it. Uh, hopefully the world will be able to see it soon. and um, I miss our summer jams that you know the, <laughs> the, 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 the summer party Kevin always had at his place um up in Toronto, North York area. so um, but, uh, hopefully we'll be able to catch up soon in person. And, um, you know, we thank you again for, for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much guys. Listen, uh, appreciate the kind words off and AJ and, uh, what, what, what you've, what you've endeavored to do is, is amazing. So much of this is about the storytelling and, and you guys. Endeavoring, committing to make the film. You you're, you're rolling up your sleeves and you're doing exactly that. And storytelling is so critical. You know, I have I told you that, how I experienced it and the wrong side of it at times as a young player to then now coming full circle and being a member of the media. And Hoff, you did a, a, a feature on me with NHL.com on this exactly, mm-hmm. maybe seven, eight years ago now already. And the, these stories are really important and stories are important because the lifeblood of our sport are peop- is people. And, you know, we have so many different human stories where everybody has their own experience and what life looks like where they've come from who their parents are where they're at where they want to go and how that all kind of blends together and the more we can tell life stories that really showcase those things the more i think it opens people's eyes to revisit the fact and remember the fact that this is a people business we're in the people business and We come in all different shapes and sizes and colors and and backgrounds and and religions and stuff and genders and orientation and stuff. But at the heart of it, it it really is about the people. And that's great that you guys are able to tell this story and and really showcase that. That's really important because it helps to normalize things. And I think once things are normalized for the right reasons, that helps to change the narrative and the perception and also people's level of comfort and understanding, which has been one of the best things that's come out of this time. And it's interesting, you said you want your film to be seen and you look forward to it being seen. You know, I think it can now be seen once you're able to, to unveil it and release it and, and you have more screenings and things of that nature people able to watch. What's important is that they can watch it with eyes that are wider open mm. and with minds that are wider open, that are more expanded, and with hearts that are also more expanded. And that's the great part of what's come through this uh, obviously some of the struggles around the pandemic itself and the life challenges, but also that in addition to the civil rights movement 2.0. Yeah. So there has been a lot of empathy. And I think that's important to highlight that there are a lot of people that don't look like me, that maybe look more like you, Hoff, or somebody else that have reached out and that have, you know, checked in and that have called, that I've seen, that I've FaceTimed with, that I've zoomed with that have been offering support. And, and even for people that didn't necessarily understand it prior to, and it's kind of added to their level of understanding, which something like this film can help to uh, to facilitate as well. So great job guys, appreciate you having me on, man. You know, last year, Steve and I had a uh, Zoom call with all the coaches
0: and yeah. five of the six coaches are all, all black men from the DC area. And people in DC and our family members that are the characters in our movie, and they're like, just finish the damn movie, man. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're, you've done yeah. enough. We right. appreciate we appreciate every second and every every <laughs> moment blood, sweat, and tears you guys have done. Just finish that movie
1: and let's see it. Thank you. And hope all your listeners out there for everybody that tunes into the pod. Thanks to all of you that tune in regardless of where you're tuning in from. And uh, and thanks to all of you that are gonna get a chance to watch the film too. It's uh this is it's a great time, and it's a time of a lot of opportunity, which is really goes back to what we were talking about on the pod. There's a huge opportunity here going forward, and it's it's a great time to have expanded consciousness and open mindedness. So, bless Thank everybody you. out there. Hope everybody's healthy and safe. Thanks everybody for tuning in. Appreciate you being NHL fans. God bless and stay healthy and safe.
0: Thanks to Kevin Weeks for joining us on this week's pod. And next week on The Godfather of Hockey, we have filmmaker Rob Ford.
1: As of the last three or four years, there's been a lot of different content and conversations. Again, the canons, in my opinion, a part of that.
2: And thank God for that, you know, we're having more, but that's what we need, man. We just need a diversity of voices and storylines and conversations and subject
1: matter to create a human experience.
0: On behalf of Steve and I, we would like to thank Michael Mayers for producing each episode. John Grigg for his excellent script writing and last but not least Brian young for allowing us to use his beats in this pod and in our film if you'd like and subscribe to the Godfather of hockey wherever you get your podcast and if you would like to put a face to the voices you hear on here please follow us on our instagram at thecannonsdocumentary. Pull up on you with the canons documentary uh-huh. yeah. don't the enemy Check the score I came back from a Getting on my game, so